through the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 7, if you'll turn there. And while you turn there, I'll tell you about what happens to me uh, about every three or four years. Every three or four years, I take an elongated trip with the, uh, the Air National Guard or the U.S. Air Force, depending on my status. And while I don't ever want to leave home for any length of time, um, and sometimes it's been months, sometimes it's just about a month, but I'm not, I don't, I'm not a traveling sort of leave your, leave your home sort of guy. I don't like it. But I will say, when I have to do it, I really enjoy it. And here's one of the reasons is, right now, I, as a guardsman, um, I'm like 90% John Boulay and 10% my alter ego, Bogey. Okay, that's my call sign. I'm rarely, I'm like 99% John and 1% Bogey. But there's a lot about Bogey that I like. Okay, there's, he's a good guy. And when I go on my trips, I just don't like living 90%, 99%. I'd rather be 100% John and no bogey or a little bit more bogey. And when I get mobilized and I go with the guard, I'm all bogey. I'm undivided. And it's great. It's great. And it's, it's not like a, a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde. Don't, don't hear me wrong. There's not, bogey is not an evil guy. He's the same essential person. Well, what I mean is the friendships that I have, the connectivity, the people I know, I, I, I see them so rarely, and yet I'm supposed to be connected to them. But when we deploy, we become this sort of, we would become this sort of fraternal group. And my, oh, it was, they're my family, and I'm their family. And my whole day, my whole day what could be non-stop devoted to being who I was among them. And there's just something that's really, really uh, worthy in that. It's just hard to be two people crammed into one person. I'll, I'll give you another example, a little closer to, actually very close to where the text is going this morning. Uh, several years ago, maybe six, seven years ago, my wife's side of her family did a, a reunion up in Minnesota, and they all went to Minnesota. And so I can't remember the exact circumstances, but I was not able to go, but it was okay. I wasn't a, I wasn't a blood relative, you know, so. But my wife went, and all of my kids went. So now I'm all by myself. But I was, I was pastoring here at the time, and I will never forget this experience because for about the three or four days that I was, you know, a class B bachelor, I suppose you would say, what, what ended up coming, ensuing was, let's just say on the Monday, you know, I get up, I get up early and I get to work around 6, 6.30 and I would work and I realized, and I Part of you are going to think, you should be careful how you say this, but I'm saying it with the right heart, so I'm going to not be careful and just trust I'm saying it with the right heart. Normally, I have to finish work at five because I turn, Pastor John turns into 
John or dad at 5.01 or whatever or 6 or whatever that time is. But this is not how it was. I could just be Pastor John like all day long. And I would go to people's houses. It was, you know, I had enough time to prepare for this. So on Monday night, I had a, a dinner meeting and I would go to someone's house and sit down with them and the meeting would go uh, it went from seven, one went from 7 p.m. to 11 at night because I was in their home and the kids were, went to bed and then like now was the chance to ask real questions and I had nowhere to be. It could have gone to one in the morning as far as I was concerned. What else am I going to do? I was entirely, it was about four or days where I was entirely singularly devoted to the kingdom. Now, I want my family back. I got my family back. That's great. This is who I am. I'm just pointing out there, there, the value of being holy and undivided, one thing, has value. And Paul's going to talk about this today. He's going to talk about God-filled singleness in a way that to the married among us, of which I'm one, I was almost going to demand a little bit more explanation. Uh, So he's not going to be demeaning or devaluing marriage, but he'll be saying something along the way where what I really think he's doing is he's focused in addressing the value of the undivided life before the Lord. And that's what he's focused on. And and I'm I'm saying this because it's, it's going to be landing in a church that's largely married. And so we're going to be like, well, wait a second, did I do something wrong? The answer is going to be no, but that's, Let's allow Paul to sort of value what he wants to value today, particularly because we rarely value that sort of in our own setting. Um, so we're going we're gonna to get there. We're going to sort of walk through uh, the rest of the seventh chapter towards, towards this thought. So we're going to be in the 25th verse. This is our third week in the seventh chapter, which for some of you might be two weeks too long. Somebody this week expressed the tediousness of the seventh chapter, and and uh, so all scriptures God breathed. Not all scriptures equally fun, uh, but we're going to continue to walk through it. I want to give it a little bit of place in the larger whole. The seventh chapter, Paul's answering a question. He's answering a question that was written to him from people in the church in Corinth, who were sort of infused with this. Asceticism, this sort of rejection of the world-isms. And the big question they have is, they have in their mind is, if, if there's value in being single and celibate, is that value something that should be desired for all? In other words, is that a practical value or is that a holy value? If you put them on the scales of the kingdom, they weigh differently? Or if you just put them in the scales of the world, do they weigh differently? Does it just happen to be, uh, is it fundamentally better before the Lord? And in fact, they're not simply, it doesn't sound like they're simply asking the question. It sounds like the question has answered itself in the fellowship in a way that says, yes, those who are actually mature in Jesus have rejected human sexuality and have rejected their marriages you get the impression that in the church in Corinth, there's people who are actually exiting their marriage under the pretense of being holy. 
And so Paul's writing them saying, you're not thinking about this the right way. And we, for those of you who've been here for the past two weeks, we've been in this for three weeks. What, what I want to say, though, is the sort of legalism that you might hear coming out of chapter 7 of sort of people rejecting their marriage in order to be holy. I, I just want to remind you, in case you don't know the or don't recall the whole compass of Corinth, this is not the way the whole church is. In the fifth chapter, it begins something like this. It is actually reported to me that there's sexual immorality taking place among you that is reprehensible even to the pagans. Particularly, there's a man sleeping with his mother's wife. That's the fifth chapter. The sixth chapter is, why are you suing each other and taking each other to like secular court? So what I want you to appreciate, in the eighth chapter that you're going to be in next week is going to be talking about uh, just sort of freedom in Christ uh, without any sort of governance, without any boundary lines, okay? That's what's going to be at at work there. And so what I want you to realize is the church in Corinth is a wildly diverse fellowship where some are relishing in their freedom while others are sort of rejecting the flesh in radical ways. It's a church of new converts. It's a divisive church. It's a religiously diverse church. I don't think it's something that we see very often today because today in churches, if you don't like the way we do it, you go somewhere else. So our community looks diverse religiously, but our churches don't. Here, there's no other place to go. They're all first-generation Christians. And so they're coming out of the world with sort of like the wild flower uh, faith where they're developing very differently. And I mean, it just seems like an unbelievably difficult church to pastor, particularly by writing letters. But here we go. So in the seventh chapter where we've been was, should we reject sexuality entirely? Paul says, no, if you're married, you belong to your spouse. Be attentive to your spouse. Then he addresses widows. If you're not married, it'd be great if you have the gift to remain unmarried. You'd be useful to the Lord that way. These are my words, but his inferences. You'd be of great use to the kingdom that way. But if, if you want to get remarried, fine, get remarried. Then he says to those married in Christ, remain married in Christ. Serve inside your marriage. Then he says to those who are married, though not married to a Christian, he says, remain in those marriages. Don't even try to get out of those marriages. Remain as you are, is what he's been saying in the seventh chapter. Remain as you are. Your status does not affect your position before the Lord. So changing it doesn't matter. Today, he's dealing with this category of those who are single and yet betrothed to be married. So they're not yet married, but they're on the way to being married, okay? And here's what he says, verse 25. I'm just going to read 25 real quick. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So some of you might uh, have the word uh, virgin instead of betrothed. 
I think the word betrothed gets closer to the meaning. These are those who are not yet married, but there's some intention for them. You might say it this way. In their thinking, they're thinking, well, if we're not married, should we not get married? And what he's going to say, and we should note very right up front, is he's saying, I'm not giving you a command. I've got no command to give you. I'm going to give you my advice. In other words, God has not levied a truth statement about this. But if you're asking me, I, Paul, am going to tell you what I, Paul, think. Okay? It's, it's opinion. When we would instruct in flying, we, would, we had two very clear categories of instruction. One was procedure and one was technique. And you were very clear. You had to be clear with the student. What's procedure and what's technique? If I'm going to teach him how to do a loop, I'm going to tell him the procedure because it's on the procedure that he's going to get graded. It's the procedure that has the metrics of right airspeed, right heading, all of those things, the correct G when he's pulling through the loop. All of those things are procedurally laid out and I instruct a procedure. However, like how to actually do it, I'll say to the student now, look, here's how it works for me. What I do is I go out and I find this point way off in the distance and I put my feet on it. And then I pull. And I do this sort of thing. And it's just sort of how I make it work. He didn't have to do that. And I can't bust him if he doesn't do that. That's what Paul's saying. He says, there's no, there's no spiritual procedure here. But you're asking me and I'm going to tell you. Okay. Let's look at 26. Actually, I'll read 26 all the way through 28. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Okay. He begins with this phrase, because of the present distress. That's what he says in 26. And he ends with this thought of, in view of the worldly troubles, I would spare you. So we've already said it's not a command, it's his advice. And then we should know what's the rationale behind the advice that Paul's giving? Is this deeply biblical rationale? Is it highly moral rationale? Is it deeply theological rationale? No. It's in view of the present distress. It's, in other words, Paul is not being the theologian right now. He's sort of being, a, he's pastoring. He's pastoring somebody. This is the reason for what he's about to say or what he just said, the reason for what he just said is in light of what's going on around us. So we'll deal in a second with going, what's, what is in fact going on around them. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know uh, exactly, but we can say a little bit about it. But here's his teaching. He says, I, in I'm not exactly sure how to give this to you, by the way. The church is all up 
there's not a lot of consensus on it. And I like to think one way, but then I get to the end and I think another. So I'll sort of share both, both ways. But it begins by saying, I would encourage you to remain as you are. He says, this person should remain as he is. Now, what does that mean is the question. If someone's betrothed, which is like a contractual engagement, okay? Betrothal is like engagement with a contract. It's more than engagement. It's less than marriage. So it has the contract that a marriage has, but it's not consummated. It's not yet. So they're not yet married, but they're on the way to being married, okay? When Paul says, I think you should remain as you are, is he saying, if you're betrothed, stay on that course. Like, you're on the way to getting married, stay on the way to getting married. Do you see that? That's like, hold your vector. Or is he saying, you should remain as you are, meaning if you're betrothed, you're not married, so stay not married. You see the difference? I wish I could tell you that I've decided what that difference is. Uh, up until... 8.15 this morning, I've been asking the Lord, which one's right? And I don't know. So I would like to, what I want to tell you is that he's saying stay on course. If you're getting married, go ahead and get married. If you're not, if you're not intended to be married, don't get married. The problem with that is you get down to 28 and it says something like this. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. It sounds to me like he is trying to demonstrate a principle like in view of the present distress, we should note that if you get married, you'll have some troubles. So if you're not yet married, maybe there's some value in not being married. That sort of feels like what he's saying. But he's not saying it on theological grounds, which is why he makes it very clear here, if you go ahead and get married, you haven't sinned. You haven't done anything wrong. I just don't think it's the wisest thing in view of the present distress. What is the present distress? Some people think it, that Paul thinks it's the end of the world. Um, I've wondered that at times. I don't actually think that's the case. First of all, that's the future distress. This is the present distress. And there's plenty of opportunity in the writings of Paul to identify that he's very concerned about the present distress and he's not all that uh, wrapped up about the future distress. He knows it's coming and he explains it. But you would think if, if he thought Jesus was about to come, he'd said it right here. Like, why cloak it? He talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the back of this letter at length. So if he thought Jesus was coming again... Why not just, I mean, right away, why not just say it? And he doesn't. But what he does say, that he does say in the fourth chapter in Corinth, I'm amazed, he says this to this immature church, I'm amazed that you act as though you've arrived and that how somehow in the Lord, like prosperity gospel, how somehow you're kings and you're reigning. He goes, I wish you'd have told me so that I could have reigned with you. But for some reason, I find that as I serve the Lord wholeheartedly, I starve and I go without and I labor and I'm reviled and I'm abandoned and I'm shamed. I wish I knew your program. You see the present distress he has? He says, I minister out of distress. In Romans chapter 8, he says this, even now, all creation is groaning, and we groan with it. Right now, we're groaning. There's, there is, in all the writings of the Paul and the, of the other apostles, a sense that for those who are in Jesus, 
now this world starts to be, it's no, we're no longer in harmony with this world, but we're start, now we're starting to kind of grind against the way of this world. Like as our eyes are opened in Christ, things which we once relied on as the hope we now see, that there's no hope in that. So if you were working, if you were working to arrive, right? You put all your hope in labor and in material things, and that was your hope. Well, to come into Christ, now you realize, wait, that, no, that's not right. There's ultimately no hope in that. And we start to see things as they are. And the result of that for the believer, at some level, is to groan. Beyond that, I don't know exactly what the present distress is in Corinth. I don't know what he particularly means. I think I know what he generally means. I do not know what he particularly means. And what I mean to say that is, if there was something acute that he's referring to, this might make even all the more sense. Can you imagine, just imagine that you are a mother or a father of a Jewish family in 1943 in a ghetto in Poland where you've registered, you have a little number or a, a patch with a star on you and you know, you're getting your rations and there's rules. Every day it's getting worse and sometimes a train shows up and people get on it and they never come back and, and that's the world you're living in and your son tells you he's fallen in love with another Jewish girl in the ghetto. What do you say? I mean, if my son asked me what he should do, I'd say, listen, it may not be evil to get married, but I would not do it. Not in this environment. Not in this present distress would I ever like want you to walk down that path. It's a path of grief. How about we wait? Let us endure. So we, we do know at this time that there were persecutions falling on churches in localized ways. I don't know. Is that, what, is that particularly what Paul's saying? I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But what I, what I want to note is he's not, he's not putting marriage below singleness in an absolute theological way. Okay? He's, he's challenging this notion in a contextual way. In light, practically, in light of what's going on here now, may not be the best thing to do. I want to skip for a second, verse 29 to 30, uh, 32, uh, 31, and I want to pick up in 32 and following. This is sort of the teaching. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to you for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. 
I hope you hear the principle there. The basic principle, and again, I think Paul's aiming towards, I think his message values uh, the devoted single here. That's his target audience. But he's saying, listen, if you're asking me, what should you do? I would say to you, that you should do it mindful that when you're single, you're one person before the Lord. You're just one, you're all that, undivided. At least you have that availability to be wholly undivided to the Lord from sunup to sundown. One of the things I think we've done with singleness is we've not ever preached godly singleness with any sort of habit. So there. The, the single person often sort of feels like, well, then I, where is my meaning? Where Paul is sort of bestowing it with a tremendous amount of meaning. He's saying, do you realize, can you even conceive of all that you have? Because the married person is not that way. And like, I'm married. I believe in marriage. I like my marriage. But just let's hear it the way he wants to say it. When you're married, you your devotions, he says, are divided, okay? It, to say it in a more kind way, he would say, your marriage becomes your mission field. <laughs> like, your married life and your children consume a significant portion of your being. And you have to be concerned with, because, because you've entered into this covenant with this person, now you have to be concerned with all sorts of things but if you were single, you could just wake up and say, well, and I'm, I'm being overly simplistic, I know this, but at least allow the rhetoric to point towards the truth. You could wake up and say, Lord, what am I to do today? When you're married, you can't quite do that. And I think those of us here who are married can appreciate that. At least if I'm saying it anywhere near well as he is, when you're married, then oftentimes children follow. And as that happens, if you, if you notice that the story your life is telling uh, gets less free, right? You're starting to sink. You're pouring footers into the ground. And you're becoming rigid. And sort of the brilliant freedom you had when you graduated college, if I can do anything, now you're like, I can, I can play Little League there or I can play Little League there. That is... That is the sum total of your freedom of existence. Like, is where will you do Little League? I mean, you're so conscripted. You used to not care where you live. You know, when you're, when you're 20, you don't care where you get an apartment. When you're 30 and you have kids, you care about what's the school zone? You know, what's that happening? You're doing the math. And when do my kids need to be in the right school area? Will I be at the right place in my job to move over to that place? I think Paul's just calling that what it is. Paul, who's entirely free to pick up and go somewhere and make tents for a while while he ministers, and then pick up and go somewhere and make some tents over here while he ministers, who always can listen to, in a dream, can listen to a man saying to him, come over here to Macedonia. And he goes, hey, I think I need to go to Macedonia. Isn't that great? At least I would say it this way. To those of you who are at present single, can you, in some part of your spirit, relish, relish the way, the purposeful way Paul is saying, 
you can literally, you're free to go wherever and however the Lord calls you. Those who are married, not so much. But, he says, get married. No sin here. It's not a moral issue. In view of the present distress, in light of the difficulties of the world, he says, I don't know about right now. I don't know if I do it. And this is why I would say, I don't know if that's true now. I don't know. It's true now somewhere else in the world. It may be true here some other time in the world that the present distress may be of such a level. It's true somewhere, usually probably all the time. But the principle is what's at work, is to recognize when we move towards marriage, we conscript ourselves to a specific mission field till death parts us. And we should not feel that's obligatory. In fact, Paul, who's coming from a Jewish culture that would say, you're not even a man if you're not married with kids. You must get married. It's radical what he's saying. It's showing, it's showing how wholeheartedly he's devoted to the Lord that he would ever even leave that tradition. Okay. I want to bring us back in, uh, to the part we skipped over, verse 29 to 31, because this is the deeper, here's the deeper thought that um, I think is driving Paul. And this is a passage that doesn't really immediately live at home with the rest of the teaching. You know, at least I think you will, you'll feel when I read it, like all of a sudden he's at a different level. So just imagine all of the teaching that was just said, imagine it's like a, it's sitting on this idea. This is what I mean, brothers. This is verse 29. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. This world is passing away. I think this, this deep idea, so... This one place, which by the way has no teaching to it really, I mean, in the sense of he's talking about marriage and he says, hey, here's my advice. Then he goes deep and he goes from being practical and pastoral now back to being deeply theological. If you thought this way, then my counsel would make sense to you. I think that's what he's saying. If you could adopt my mind and my view and my perspective, then everything else I said would make sense to you. And by the way, for a church like ours, which maybe is not wrestling with this so much, or for some of you who may not be wrestling with this so much, this deeper teaching would shape how you think in other areas of your life. He's saying, live as though you knew this world was passing away. Live as though you knew the reality coming that you're a part of renders what's, what now, the real things now, as being insignificant. Your mourning now is incomparably small, will be quenched and stomped out by the joy of what's to come. Like, why would you be defined by your grief now 
when the reality is, is that one day there'll be so much joy you will not be able to remember what it was you were sad about. And why would you search for joy right now or bask in rejoicing right now so much as though this is it, when the truth is it doesn't even compare. It does not compare to what's about to happen. Why would you obsess yourself in life and making things and buying things and maneuverings and advancing? Why would you do all of that right now in an obsessive way? You do, don't act as though this world is not passing. Someone wrote it this way. I thought this was clear, clear enough to quote. The Christian is marked by eternity. Therefore, he or she is not under the dominating power of those things that dictate the existence of others. The Christian is marked by eternity. Therefore, he or she is not bound by the things which dominate and dictate the existence of other people. Paul's giving us a call not to be absorbed by things. Life calls us, Christ calls us up. Not in a way that makes things meaningless. He's not saying in a way that makes us detached, like, oh, we don't even care about marriage anymore. We, we don't care about this or we don't care about that. He's not saying that we become so aloof and detached, so stoic, but rather we hold things as though they weigh the appropriate amount. I think in this case, in this church right now, the question is marriage, right? They're all wrapped around the axle of marriage and sexuality. What am I allowed to hoot at? What if I'm in this place? Can I move in this place? And he says, listen, I'm trying to relieve your anxiety about it. If you just lived infused by the kingdom coming, I think you would, I think you would hold this stuff with an even hand. So, I thought we'd end there because I'd like us to approach the table with this question. I'd like us to, as we go to the Lord, I'm going to ask you to go to the Lord mindful of how you, how do you live? Do you live in such a way that recognizes this world is passing? Or do you, or do you live in a way that's sort of whole gripped, white knuckle gripped into the circumstances right now as though what you're doing now matters so much and you have to get it right or you have to get it or you have to achieve it. I mean, I would even ask you, is the way that you're holding things or pursuing things, is it Softly rejecting the gospel. I mean, as you sort of come to the Lord, and in fact, let's just bow our heads just so that you're uh, beginning just to, I'll, I'll stop talking in a second, but just as you begin to direct your own attention to the Lord, to open your ears to the Holy Spirit. Lord, what we want to know as we come to your table, as we recognize that your body and your blood, which you did not hold on to, you did not hold on to your own life. You didn't consider it too precious and you were God. You were very nature God and you let that go on our behalf. 
Lord, you were called a man of sorrows. You didn't, you didn't walk in this life pursuing earthly dreams, having to define value by what school you're going to or what major you're going to have or what job you're going to get. Or, Oh, Lord, how many of us far enough in life have realized that so many of our dreams were silly? Lord, show us, we pray, what it is we hold too hard onto, Lord, and make us live as though this world was passing away. We invite that, Lord. We invite a, a mindset that is driven by the kingdom coming. We pray this in Jesus' name.